I'm mischievous Mark Chinacchio, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, Amazing Fantasy 15, and all of the Amazing Spider-Man annuals, which are, of course, a separate series, which means they don't count. And I'm Dapper Dan Gavazdin, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, which, you know, if you want to file them as a separate series, fine, but in my heart, they definitely count. But, of course, for me, Amazing Fantasy 15 an entirely separate series of books that just happen to have a Spider-Man story in them. Uh, it, it will remain a fantasy. I imagine for the foreseeable so future. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, welcome to the amazing spider talk, the show where two fans and collectors uncover the strange, fun and fascinating history of the Spider-Man comic universe. Thanks for joining us for this review episode of the amazing spider talk. Thanks, Dan. If you want to swing along with us on our journey through Spidey's past, present, and future, subscribe to Amazing Spider Talk on your favorite podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a review to help spread the word about our show. Also, while you're at it, why don't you subscribe to our Substack at amazingspider.substack.com. On that Substack, we are covering every tie-in to the Gang War series. And, uh, you know, there'll be some other fun things there. So every two weeks, you get this little thing emailed to you. It's not even a little thing. It's a pretty big thing because, you know, we just love giving away our content, Dan. That's, that's what we do. We are masters of just throwing it all at people. <laughs> Please take it. You know, Mark, I'm thinking about our intro and how, you know, each week now I'm pushing back against your Amazing Fantasy 15. And I feel like me, like, pumping up the values of annuals had very little material impact on the world. But now that I'm, like, actively tearing down Amazing Fantasy 15, <laughs> I am, like, potentially impacting your ability to retire. Oh, uh, and so, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> You're truly making a dent on that day. <laughs> yeah, I, like Mark, Mark, I am coming for your wallet. Yeah, I mean, that, 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 that book yeah. has just plummeted since Dan has started to talk crap about it. I mean, you know, it's... It's all I've got to potentially own one someday, Mark. <laughs> I've got to reduce it to toilet paper. Speaking of finances, uh, this podcast exists because of the support of our Patreon members. If you want to receive early episodes, exclusive artwork, and keep our podcast going, guys, it's expensive to do the podcast that we do and pay all of our creators who help us to do it. Go to AmazingSpiderTalk.com and consider joining our Patreon. But today on the show, Mark and I are going to be discussing Amazing Spider-Man Volume 6, Number 40. 
This issue is written by Zeb Wells. The cover and interior artwork is by John Romita Jr. Inks by Scott Hanna. Colors by Marcio Menez. And of course, letters by VC's Joe Caramagna. This issue was first released on December 20th, right before Christmas. So Mark and I are squeaking this one in in 2023. Squeak, squeak, Dan. You want to hear about what happened in this issue told only through the lens of the craziness that is my brain? Let's hear it, Mark. Well, we open in the West Village and two men talking in silhouette. One is holding a rose. This is either the rose getting ready to do some bad stuff or it's the worst episode of The Bachelor ever. Indeed, (laughs) it's Digger. Remember him? Digger and the rose. The rose is looking to take back the territory he lost all the way back in the beginning of Zeb Wells' run. Digger says the beetle is holding down Tombstone's territory and Rose threatens that he's going to have to take care of her first. Now we're in the meatpacking district and we got some bro talk and I'm getting excited. Who says we don't get what we want for Christmas, right, Dan? Indeed, the tracksuit mafia is teaming up with Mr. Negative's inner demons and life is complete. Lord, you can come and take me now. Sadly, (laughs) Tombstone shows up to break it all up and he says he's made a treaty before he, Spider-Man, and She-Hulk start cracking some skulls. She-Hulk and Spidey even do a twist on the fastball special, and honestly, this may be the greatest thing I've ever seen. After taking care of business, Spidey and She-Hulk are ready to go to more neighborhoods, and Tombstone tells them to pump the brakes. They're working with him now, you see, and he sees the moves. They don't have time to fight every battle. Back downtown, Madam Mask is still talking like a Bond villain, and it's up, and she's with Hammerhead's rotting corpse. Seriously, just shoot the guy and end this. But no, Mask is waiting for the sharks to hit freaking laser beams. And in this case, that means she wants the credit that she thinks she's earned. Okay, sure. She's going to own the city because no one has ever even seen her. In Harlem, Janice and White Rabbit are chit-chatting. And Janice is about to show the world that she means business, a.k.a. new costume time. Woo, look at that thing, right, Dan? Can't wait for this comic to jump up in value now. Back to the three best friends that anyone's ever had, and Tombstone is smartly only pouring two drinks for him and Jennifer. Lonnie heard the Rose is back in town, and he's coming for him. Spidey is like, I'm not fighting that battle for you again. And Tombstone mentions it's not like having a renowned criminal teaming up with Spider-Man and other heroes is doing wonders for his image either. By the way, She-Hulk loves the whiskey. So the plan is for the three of them to wait for Fist to show up so he can stop the gang war. Meanwhile, Madame Mask is surrounded by Hammerhead's goons, but she has an ace up her sleeve. The bleeding out bodies of Count Nefaria and Silvermane's disembodied head being held by Shotgun. I guess that's why she's not shooting these people, right? Anyway, Shotgun tosses the two thugs overboard and both go down with a crunch. Though honestly, Silvermane's head doesn't actually look worse for wear. Is Nefaria dead? There is no body. I don't even know anymore. Anyway, Silvermane says it. Madame Mask leads the Magia now. Beetle and the Syndicate have just taken out a bunch of Diamondbacks guys up in Sugar Hill, and that leads to this book doing the split screen thing again, though I think I can follow the action better this time, although readers know Dan had to fix this recap, so I couldn't follow the action. Anyway, Tombstone's guest is here, Spidey thinks it's the Rose, while Janice learns that someone has already taken down Diamondback. And just like that other Christmas story, the gift of the Magi hits the other way around. And Wilson Fisk, Typhoid Mary, and the Hellfire Club have arrived 
where Spidey and Tombstone are while the Rose and Digger are waiting for Janice. See you in the new year, Merry Marvelites. But first, we're going to review this thing. So, Mark, I, I got to ask you, and not to go completely off topic here. You know, <laughs> but the, the it's last what we do most, best. <laughs> the last most famous gang war ends with like the fat suit daredevil. Would you would you be okay? Okay, I have to ask this. If this whole thing resolved and it turns out like the the guy in the purple boots is the shocker and and, and Madame Mask wins the whole thing and Shocker steps out of the shadow, shoots her dead, grabs Silvermane's head, and that's the end. He has res- resumed his place as the head of the Magi. What would your fandom for Shocker Magi Lord uh rule over the actual quality of a story like this. That is a wild twist, Dan. I I I I thought you were about to say like is is Beetle in a gimp costume the new Daredevil in a fat suit? Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> so you know you threw me there. Let's wait and see, Dan. We got to see what Zeb's got up his sleeve, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, well, back to the actual topic. You know, Mark, many of the spider events that we've gotten over the years tend to start strong. I mean, just listen to any of our reviews. They're like A plus reviews and then they just (laughs) sour from there. And I think one of the things that we see is that they start to repeat themselves and kind of spin their wheels by the middle chapters. And we're kind of left with like a giant wrap up issue. We still got four issues to go on the proper gang war story. And now it just got solicited a gang war wrap up story in issue 45. Do you still think by the second chapter of this book proper, this event still has gas in the tank? Oh, 100 percent. I I feel like we're still moving lots of pieces on the board here. We got new players entering the fray. You know, you got the roses back in town. Fisk is back in town with the Hellfire Club and Typhoid Mary. Beatles got a new costume. I mean, new costumes always keep the action moving. Right. Was this issue like ever so slightly a bit of a come down from the the prelude and and the first installment yeah i i think that's that's only natural for middle chapters but like i still feel like we're setting a lot of stuff up here and you know frankly there's still some other things that haven't been addressed yet that we might have to talk about over the course of this episode yeah i think there's gas in the tank i mean are are, are you are you losing faith in gas here dan or, or have or have you been bidened at the pump here by this story and uh you don't want to pay for it anymore I, i'm just i'm i'm trying to make really bad political references i'm sorry folks go yeah, silver mains uh, <laughs> uh taxes are getting me no i think this is really exciting and i think a lot of that has to do with the fact that zeb is so excellent at pacing these comics you know like there are so many different threads that are moving here and it feels effortless you know i i think back to like um like slot and spencer who like for all their qualities i feel like bouncing between storylines was never something they did very elegantly and i think zeb has just got that down here you know each scene really breathes the characters and their dramas come to life and like even though we have a shorter page count than we've had before I do feel like we still get the quiet moments and the humor of like a Straczynski showing up here. I mean, it's not quite as decompressed as that because it can't be. But like we were used to bemoan not getting like moments of uh, introspection amongst characters. And we get a lot of that here. Now, it's not coming from the player that I would want. I, I, I'm still waiting for Spider-Man's role to like 
step up in this, where he becomes the active protagonist. And that's something that we've also complained about a lot in Spider-Man comics over the past decade that we've been doing the show is like, he often feels like he's backstage. And I thought First Strike set him up to have a really active role, which is like, he's out here to prove Randy right and make his death or injury not meaningless. And I don't think he's not doing that, but I'm yet to see him like really make a like a, an active dynamic choice. And I think that's coming, but it it still makes it feel like Spider-Man is kind of playing second fiddle to Tombstone, especially in this issue, which makes sense. Tombstone's doing some 40 chess thing, uh, or at least he thinks he is. I think that's the only thing I'm still waiting to see kick off here is like, what is Spider-Man's role going to be in this? What kind of decision is he going to have to make? What kind of actions is he going to have to put into place to really like solidify this as a story that's uh, being driven by him? Yeah, no, I I see what you're saying, but I I mean, like, I'm frankly willing to overlook it to a degree because, I mean, especially as it relates to Tombstone, I mean, he as a character has kind of been off the board the the last, what, like 10 or so issues of, of the series kind of keeping the focus on him and having him, you know, like he was reintroduced in the, at the end of the last issue. And, you know, like as for a very dramatic effect, like, oh, we're teaming up again. So I feel like, you know, some significant focus needed to be placed on that to kind of get a sense of like, okay, so what, what, what do we have here? You know, also, you know, we obviously have these, the storyline evolving with the Rose and, and Janice and, you know, just as, you know, Randy's, I don't want to say death, but near death or potential death made things personal for Spider-Man. I feel like, you know, Zeb seems interested in, in making this personal for several characters in, in, you know, in this run. And I think this is going to, you know, whatever is going to happen on that end is going to make this more personal for Tombstone. And then I think you're going to frankly have some real drama there if Spider-Man is used properly, you know, like, you know, if he's teaming up with this person who's now ready to go on a murderous rampage because his daughter has been hurt or kidnapped or killed or whatever, then, you know, that you're going to have kind of maximum carnage vibes in terms of like, how do I, how do I manage this? You know what I mean? Like, well, let me piggyback on that thought because like maximum carnage is often criticized for being like so bloated and so full of characters. I mean, it's like a who's who of like villains and heroes. In my mind, I think by the end of this issue where Wilson Fisk, you know, and the Hellfire Club and Typhoid Mary are introduced into this, I'm ready for like the expansion of this cast to cease. Like, I think, I hope this is all the players, you know? I think back to the, you know, the 80s gang war, which, uh, you know, we talked about in season six or we're going to talk about at the time of this recording of season six by like issue three and four of that, they were still introducing new heroes and villains into the story. And that's where it, it always loses me every time I reread it. And I feel like by now we've got a, an expansive cast. I'm ready. Like, I feel like the Madam mask thing is starting to really narrow. Like her role has become very defined here. Like uh, the introduction of the fists and the setup of the dynamics there is defined and I'm sure the Wilson Wilson Fisk of it all is going to be more solidified over the next issue, especially since they're on the cover, but I'm ready for that to be the cast of the gang war. Like, so now it's like narrow, 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 and hopefully it narrows to a point that includes Spider-Man at the central like moment, you know, he's going to cut the Gordian knot or 
whatever you uh, metaphor you want to go for. But like, I feel like this is it. Stage set. Let's go. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, it remains to be seen. I mean, we we are still only technically in chapter two here. So like, I'm not, you know, ready to ding them for elements like that yet, you know, in terms of bringing in new no, players. No, no, no. I just, yeah. that's my hope going forward. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, in terms of like just overall vibes of this issue, I mean, like I got to say, this just reads like a comic with creators who are having the time of their lives making comics right now. And, and that is something to be said in its own right. I mean, I think there was a lot of fun to be had during the 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 Patrick Gleason Zeb Wells arc with with Craven and and but like there was still such a, a darkness. I mean, it's you know it's Dark Spider Man and you know he's doing things that you're kind of as a fan uncomfortable seeing. Even even in the like maybe the creative fun there, I think like my fun as a reader was was tempered a little bit. Whereas here, this is just like. This is just good old school, good fun. You know what I mean? Like between the tracksuit mafia and the demons, and then you have, you know, the 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 fastball special with she she Hulk and Spider Man, and you know, Tombstone's coming in, and you know, only pouring the two drinks. Uh, you know, Beetle in a Beetle in a gimp suit. I mean, like you know, it's just like a lot of a lot of really like they're just having a good time. You could just tell that that they they they're. They're confident in this story. They're they're they want to tell this story. I'm thinking back to obviously the storyline that dominated like the first 26 issues or so of, of this run. And 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 you know, not that I don't feel like Zeb didn't want to tell that story. He clearly did, especially towards the end. I got the sense that, you know, maybe there were parts of it that he wasn't always comfortable telling, or maybe, you know, some of the fan pushback got to him a little bit. This this comic does not read like that at all. It is just like let's just have 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 a ball, do some fun stuff, do some fun visual stuff. Ramita is just in his element here. I mean, like I I mean the guy's always crushing it, but like you know between how he's drawing Digger and and Tombstone, and then like the introduction to the rose and the silhouette with the with the rose silhouette to boot. I mean, like the, the like. You know, I, I, I'm repeating myself, but they just are having so much fun right now. And that is infectious as a reader. I think the only thing that's missing from this to make it like a all time classic, you know, 70s, 80s style Spider-Man story is the Peter Parker of it all. You know, like seeing him and his world responding to the gang war. And I just don't think the number of pages in these comics allows for it, which is a sad thing. Uh, if it can't do that, and it has to focus on all of this. And I think it's working really, really well. You know, I love the parallelism that Zeb plays with. It just works so well. It's a tactic that he returns to all the time. I got to be honest, it gives me a lot of like confidence in this series that like you don't just pull one of those off lightly. Like those are cleverly crafted. The page turns are always very fun, which is like the sign of a really good comic. Someone who's thought through what's the surprising page turn. This one, you know, maybe not on the level of like what we got in like issue four of this run in terms of surprises uh, with the page turns. But, you know, because like I think we could all probably guess that Kingpin would eventually show up as part of this story. But like the way that this thing plays out with so much poeticism to the page and how an issue functions really gives me a lot of confidence in Zeb's work on this book. So what did you think of the 
the Spider-Man and Tombstone team up besides the fact that it took away from having enough Spider-Man. Well, I mean, I'm I'm happy to see them together. Like, I think it's a really fun dynamic between the two because they clearly like aren't comfortable working together. And there's a sort of like grudge or like one upsmanship in terms of the jokes or putting each other down. It's uncomfortable alliance, but it's fun to read. It's, it's limited, you know, but it's fun. And, you know, I, I don't know if I can trust Tombstone and what he's got uh, up. And I suspect that that's going to really play out over the next chapter of this. Now that uh, we had a switcheroo pulled on us at the end, which I I don't technically think that Tombstone lied about, but he, what he pulled up from a certain point of view, like which Fisk was coming to dinner, so to speak. How about you? Have you enjoyed this uh, team up? Oh yeah, no, for sure. I mean, like, you know, I, I made note of it in the recap, but I really like enjoyed the detail of like Tombstone only pouring the two drinks. You know, it's like, yeah, like, you know, there's, there, there is nothing in the history of these two characters that suggests that they, that they like truly intimately know each other. And yet that is just like a very astute observation that I feel like a character like Tombstone would pick up on and, and, and do, and I'm glad that he did it. Like, you know, like it it was just like, you know, rather than having a, an awkward moment of, Oh, I don't drink, you know what I mean? Or anything like that. So, well, well, actually I'll, I'll point out, Mark, this is the level of detail that I think uh, Zeb is putting into his uh, work is that in issue five, if you remember, Spidey comes over to Tombstone's place and Tombstone offers him a drink. Oh, that's and right. He turns him down, right? That's right. So, that's right. Like, okay. That's, he did learn that. So, like, that's the level of thought that's going into these books. And it and it really, like, just breathes life into it that these characters don't forget, like, what has transpired previously. So I, I really appreciated that, too. Yeah. Okay. Well, now you made me made my observation seem even better because like it actually did refer to something instead of just kind of being a random uh, aside. But anyway, it's an interesting dynamic. Like you said, I I, I appreciated that there is some it's not like these characters have kind of, um, you know, surrendered to the moment of, well, we have to work together. You know, like like there's clearly some tension there. I also appreciated from a from a creator standpoint that. You know, while you would assume that the bulk of the tension would be more from Spider-Man's end in terms of like, I'm working with a villain. What, what are people going to I liked that we kind of had the inversion of that with Tombstone being like, hey, don't don't think that, you know, what we what happened earlier, you know, in this run and then now is doing me any favors either. And it seems patently obvious, to, to, you know, uh, that that might be the case. But it, it's it's good to see the character acknowledge it instead of just like hand waving stuff that you would think would be a problem for a character like Tombstone. So, you know, it, it, again, like it, the, the comic is coming across as incredibly self-aware and, you know, like like you said, it's it's aware of its own history, but it's also just kind of aware of context and not trying to um, shoehorn action into a situation without at least giving the characters a nod uh, to develop and, and, and kind of, you know, play things out a little bit here. So I also think the like subtle maturation of Spider-Man here um, is really nice. You know, we came from like eras of Spider-Man's no kill code and no one dies. And I, you know, I think as much as I enjoy a lot of those stories and, and I think I even said like the no one dies was my, favorite Spider-Man story of the decade when we when we rolled over into 2020 here, you know, the implication is like, hey, we have to go take out like all these other gangs. And Tombstone says, no, if we do, then they're going to consolidate power 
we should let them fight each other. And Spider-Man doesn't really push back on it. He's like, you know, that actually kind of makes sense. And I feel like a Spider-Man under the pen of like Dan Slott would be like, no, and just take the weight of that responsibility on himself and and be like, how could I align myself with a villain who and and, and this is just smarter than that. He learned a lesson in the first volume of this run, the first story where he got, you know, manipulated and, you know, used to pawn one you know, group af- after another. And maybe the same thing's happening again now, but I think he's staying quiet and observing rather than like letting his own responsibilities throw himself into a fray without knowing where all the pieces lie. And so like, I, I, I really appreciate like it's being done quietly in the background, but I think it's there on the page, like that he doesn't write him reacting to that in, in a big way. I, another small note that I wanted to mention is like Joe Caramagna, you know, I, I think most people are criminal uh, in regards to like not mentioning lettering in a book, but I really love what he's doing with Lonnie Lincoln's text and making it slightly smaller. I kind of always lean in to read it. Maybe I'm just getting old, Mark. But, uh, <laughs> like it's just small enough that I have to kind of focus my eyes and it makes me feel like I'm leaning into hearing him whisper. And there is that kind of like whispering gravelly confidence that Tombstone has that makes him all the more menacing. And it's amazing how much something as simple as like making the lettering smaller and the word balloons all like wavy conveys about the way a character holds himself. But the, what I really want to talk to you, Mark, Mark is, and this was maybe speculation, but something to kind of like weigh for us is like, what is Tombstone's play here? Right? Because Spidey thinks he's meeting Richard Fisk and ostensibly I imagine to think that he could broker a deal between the two men and and consolidate power and end the war. But Tombstone knows that it's Wilson Fisk and the Hellfire Club that's showing up. What is his expectation? Does he want to kind of hand things over to Kingpin who may be able to rule the mobs with less chaos? I, I don't know. It doesn't seem to me like Tombstone would be willing to hand this all back over to Wilson Fisk. What what, what do you think? Do you, do you think that there is some grander plan here? I mean, I have to assume, yeah, there's something, obviously. Otherwise, what are we doing here? But like, you know, my, my, my only pushback with like, oh, well, Kingpin will rule with less chaos is, I mean, well, we just talked about this in our season six finale, Dan. I mean, like we've gotten that storyline before. It's like, oh... You know, Kingpin is a necessary evil, blah, 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 blah. Like, like that story has been done to death at this point. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I don't, I, I like if, I mean, maybe that's the plan, but like, I would imagine that the plan will blow up on Tombstone if he thinks that's the case. I mean, that could be the other thing. It's like maybe what he thinks is going to happen is not going to happen. I mean, obviously, Kingpin being aligned with, you know, the Hellfire Club and Typhoid Mary, that's... That's a new wrinkle in terms of, uh, you know, like just potential chaos and and, and issues there. Yeah. I, I mean, I, do, you, do you take like uh, Lonnie Lincoln at his word that like his primary goal here is just to save his daughter? Because I kind of do. But I think saving the daughter comes with something else that we haven't really determined yet, like handing her the entire mafia and gang control of New York City to keep her out of harm's way 
I don't know. Like, like what what goes with saving his daughter? Yeah, I don't think it's purely that for sure. There's there's a lot more to it than that. But I, 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 I don't know if we have gotten enough breadcrumbs here or at least noticeable breadcrumbs, because we do know that Zeb has a habit of hiding those things in plain sight to, to, to make that guess just or I can't make that guess just yet. Like this is not the this is not me being like, oh, I'm not going to speculate. It's me being like, I, I don't know. You know, I, I legitimately don't know. But I, yeah, my assumption is that this is not it's not just, oh, I'm, I'm here to save my daughter. No, I mean, like there's something in it for him that's greater than that. Or I don't want to say greater than that, but, you know, more selfish than that maybe is the is uh, the the word I'm looking for. Like, I, I don't think it's it's I, I don't. It's not that I don't trust Tombstone. I just don't trust that he is truly being motivated only by purity of 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 concern here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just I guess like I'm curious, like what saving his daughter means. Like, I mean, he could he could I mean, if taking down the entire gang network is a way to keep her out of trouble in regards to the gangs, then like maybe that's his goal. Like I, I'm I just wanted to kind of track this because. Like, I don't think we truly know Tombstone's plan here, as we didn't in the first volume of, of the story. He's a increasingly interesting character, issue by issue, in regards to, like, what does he want and how is he going to go about it? For sure. For sure. All right. Well, you know what would be a great place to track these kinds of things, Dan? Where, Mark? Well, we have this thing called the Amazing Spider Slack. Hundreds of listeners like you hang out in our community of Spider-Man fans on Slack. The amazing Spider-Slack community is absolutely free to join, and you can jump into active conversations with awesome people about collecting conventions, movies, new comics, old comics, and much, much more. Dan, what is hopping in the Slack this week? Mark, it's been crazy in the Slack this week because, like... I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but it feels like it's like Comic-Con time, given all of the <laughs> announcements we've been getting about Spider-Man comics. I mean, just the past few weeks, we, these are some of the things we've learned. Spider-Gwen is getting her own book again that fe- finally traps her in the 616 for good. Like, that's that's crazy. I don't know that I like that, but uh, okay. We're getting the reboot of Web of Spider-Man. That was announced today. Well, I think it's uh, just a one-shot, right? Or Yeah, or but still, web, okay. web of Spider-Man, Mark. Okay, okay. We've got the announcement of a new book called The Spider Society, written by friend of the show Alex Segura. And we've also got JMD doing a Shadow of the Green Goblin book. Like, we're going to learn all about the proto-goblin, Mark. Uh... I'm exhausted hearing that, but um, you know, <laughs> if J- anybody can do it, maybe JMD will convince me of the value of that. And then Peter David's Spider-Man 2099 story is coming back. The symbiote Spider-Man 2099, you know, Peter David's health has been on the mend and it looks like maybe he's coming back to finish this story that got punted. So, I mean, there's just so much 2024 Mark, Maybe we made a mistake launching the Slack and reviewing all these books because, man, anytime I think the spider line can't grow any bigger, it suddenly does. Like I, I think we're in for some serious shakeups and big books and all kinds of stuff in 2024. All right, Dan. Well, I, I am 
happy to, you know, pop into the Slack once or twice a month and, and watch you all just have your brains melt because of it. And then, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we, they're melting away in the Slack. You know, it's been fun to speculate and uh, on all the things that, that are going on. So anyway, if you love Spider-Man as much as we do and you want to come chat Spidey with us and all of our awesome listeners, come join our amazing Spider Slack. There's a link in the description of this episode that'll let you sign up in less than a minute. I don't know how you're listening to the show and you have heard us do this ad dozens of times and you listen to an hour-long show about Spider-Man and you're not in the Slack. What are you doing with your life? Come jump in the Slack. There you go. You know, I've made numerous jokes about it already uh, in this episode here, but Janice Lincoln has had some, I don't know if you want to call it growth, but some new stuff is happening with her. What are, you, what are, you, what are your initial thoughts on, on Janice, the, the, the new costume, anything else? I just want to know what New York dominatrix den she stole that costume <laughs> from, because Lord knows some Wall Street bros are, uh, are, are wondering where they can like uh, sign up for this or even call Randy. I mean, like what a thing to wake up to from a coma. Speaking of which, uh, like it would be nice to check back in with that drama. I feel like that's something that like can could help retain the heart of the Spider-Man drama here. I don't know. What'd you think of this suit? I think I got to admit it. I do think it looks a bit silly, uh, maybe scary enough effective. Yeah, I mean, like, it, 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 it kind of confirms what I've been thinking about Janice, this whole storyline so far, which is that I, 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 I'm still not convinced that she has made this transformation yet and that this is just not her kind of just cosplaying as who she wants people to think she is. I mean, even the whole unveiling here, it's like, you know, I, I'm, I'm about to show them I mean business. What do you think? And then, you know, White Rabbit's like, you look like someone who means business. It, it just felt very, I, I don't know if it was meant to be this way, but like it felt a little patronizing to me and like, oh, okay. You know, like, yeah, we're, we're like definite intentional telling instead of showing here. Uh, you know, I know she had the one scene in the last issue where she, she drops the, I forget which character it was. Uh, a lot of people just get dropped in this book. <laughs> so, like, it's just like, like, yeah. I'm going to hire a guy named Shotgun. Is he going to shoot someone? No, he's going to drop them. He's just going to drop like they're already like half dead bodies. <laughs> I can't say I'm a, I'm a huge fan of it from just a general aesthetic thing. Like I, 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 I don't know what it's, what it's supposed to convey outside of like, oh, I mean, yeah, it's a little scary. I'm not going to, I'm not going to deny that. I, I'm not sure if this whole thing quite worked for me. If what they're trying to get across is that, you know, she's kind of straining to be taken seriously, then that works, I guess, if that makes sense. I like the visual element of like, it reminds me of like a, like a scarab beetle or like with like a hard, like black carapace. You know, like, uh, like there is something to that, but I do think the design is kind of silly. And look, I, I love John Romita Jr. Uh, and like sometimes his designs really land. But I, I don't know that like he's the first guy I go to for designing new looks for characters necessarily. I mean, whatever. He designed the Hobgoblin. So fair be it. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, I love the look of that character, but it is very, you know, derivative. And he admitted as such when he came on the show, you know, but then when I think about him redesigning the Hobgoblin, it was like pouches on pouches and cyborg eyes. And it's like, OK, although this one is very simple, but I, I do think you're right. I think this is kind of an indication that she's kind of like 
clearly overstepping her bounds. And I think the stuff with the Rose is not going to end up well for her. I just don't know that the Lincoln families, as personified by Janice, is really ready to tangle it up with the Fisks. And I guess we'll see. But like the end of the book suggests like the Rose has basically laid a trap. And as much as we saw the Rose get punched out in one clean blow in issue four of this run, you know, there is some menace to that character is established here. Like uh, the opening page with him and Digger in silhouette is like chilling. And the reveal of him and all the bodies here around the desk is too. I don't think this is going to be something the syndicate is able to kind of just squeak their way out of. No, no, they're not going to be able to kind of, you know, be too cute here for sure. You know, like I, 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 I mean, you're right. The bodies at the desk were, were a good touch, but like I, 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 if I if I had a complaint on just how like this scene resolved, I I, I guess I, I was looking for more of a like a gotcha moment here. You know what I mean? Like, like he kind of comes out, but like, you know, like I, I think I wanted to see maybe a, more of a reaction from her if I through the suit. I don't know. But you know what I mean? Like it, it just like it felt like there was uh, still like some bit of an emotional beat missing in that moment you know do you catch what i'm saying like it just yeah I mean, it, like maybe more of a physical threat like digger picking her up and like pinning her to the ground or something like that that would undersell how much trouble she's in yeah like that exactly like i we know like it's one of those things like the reader only knows because we had that scene in the very beginning where he's like i'm gonna kill her and now we see her with it but like i i think to truly like sell the cliffhanger of it like because she doesn't know, like she, you know, for all she knows, she thinks she's just going to be dealing with another negotiation here. I, I don't know. I would have liked a little more drama to that scene. I guess that's the bottom line. Yeah. And, and the power dynamic stuff is always like wishy-washy, you know, like she can take out one boss without even blinking. And, you know, and, and like I said, the Rose got knocked out in one punch. Like, you know, is the syndicate going to be able to take out Digger and the Rose? No problem. You know. I, I do like having read that 80s gang war story recently. I do think about like the the conflict set up where, you know, uh, they're like, is Janice a cold hearted killer? Is she going to be able to kill someone? And it's very similar to the Rose's arc. And of course, what does this issue start with? But the Rose taking a gun and putting it into its holster. And it immediately sends me back to the arc that the Rose went through in that 80s story where he killed a cop and and was finally forced to use his gun. So maybe there's something there. I, I doubt it. It could be an interesting layup as like the two kids of these massive gang lords who both started out a little more pure of heart and and as the world soured them in, in, in some way. I think the last thing I really wanted to talk about for this uh, issue, Dan, was just, you know, I, I, we've obviously been getting lots of material indicating like Madame Mask as, you know, if not the big bad of gang war, at least like the chief antagonist of it. Um, I feel like this comic furthered it, you know, as much as I'm enjoying this and, you know, as much fun as I'm having, like this might be my biggest issue with the storyline so far, not because I, I, you know, I'm, I'm well versed enough in Marvel to know that Madame Mask is a big deal. But this is also like a major Spider-Man storyline. And I mean, you know, this is one of the few events that is emanating 
strictly from a Spider-Man book and and kind of branching out. And, you know, when you think of past um, storylines that were the were that like, you know, like Maximum Carnage or uh, I mean, even Spider Island, like, OK, fine. The the queen was it Spider Queens, Queen Spider. I, 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 I I'm, I'm losing track of this queen come first or not you know she was not necessarily a big spider-man villain but the but the premise of the of the conflict was a very spider-man conflict this is less so i mean this is this could very easily be a daredevil story or you know any other street level uh you know luke cage and 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 iron fist you know what i mean like it it does not necessarily have to be a spider-man story we've gotten some elements that have made it personal with Spider-Man, but like we've been talking about like kind of moving away from that in this issue. And I feel like really making Madame Mass just the end all be all is missing something here. Like I, I like I, I'm not I'm not caring enough to just to be blunt about it. And and you know, even when she's kind of monologuing here to Hammerhead about why she's doing it. Again, it's like, okay, like she's basically like, oh, you've all overlooked me for all these years. And I'm like, that might be true. But guess what? I've never really picked up on that as a, someone who basically just reads Spider-Man because you're never in Spider-Man and you don't interact with these characters there. So, you know, if you feel like Hammerhead and Tombstone and Wilson Fisk are are being, you know, you know, derisive, you know, deriding you and ignoring you, well, that's great. You know, take it up with them in another book. Uh, <laughs> yes, I don't know. Like, it just seems, we, I, do you get what I'm saying? Do you agree? Or am I being totally, little, uh, totally? Yeah. yeah. I do think that this book does sell her as a big bad. Like her actions are very violent and she is really making moves. And so like, you're right. I I, I think you're right. It's, it, she's a hundred percent positioned to be the bad guy of this story that everyone's going to have to like, you know, face off against it. Some, some, some much you know her confidence on the page does a lot for me to like buy her as a major player but you're right there's been no seeding of her in this story like honestly like uh, if she was replaced with white rabbit i probably would buy it a bit more right like i've been overlooked for this long like i'm stepping up and i've been in spider-man comics for the past 10 years frequently you know but i think my biggest problem other than that with her is that right now her actions also seem to be operating outside of the primary actions of our protagonist. Like, I'm not quite sure how she relates to the drama of the Fisk, you know, uh, tombstone Lincoln worlds and Spider-Man worlds other than that. She's another player in the gang war. Like the only thing that's making her seem like the big bad is because of just how evil she seems to be, but I'm not charting her evil actions against how they impact Spider-Man and his world and the consequences that are happening right now. It's like this other story and I'm sure they're going to impact at some point, but right now I'm not like, Oh my God, I can't believe she's doing that. It's like, okay, she could just be another gang that they take out in the same manner as crime master. I know that she's not going to, because I know how stories work, but the story is not telling me like you should be very worried that Spider-Man is going to have to go up against Madame Mask because she's got some bead on some element in his life. That's the thing that's keeping me like at arm's length is what what is she, what is she contributing? Like how does she relate to what Lonnie Lincoln is going through? The the only thing that she's contributing is 
you know, her availability, it feels like, you know what I mean? Like, so, and, and I do think, I mean, there could be more to it. And this is the other thing too, that, you know, it, it, it occurred to me in this issue, like, you know, we, we saw in, what was it? The last chapter of the rec rap story in the coda, the purple boots that, you know, kind of started the speculation game because they, they came in on Nefaria and Silvermane. And meanwhile, Nefaria and Silvermane were, you know, thrown off the side of the building by uh, mask and, and shotgun. So like, you know, my understanding was whoever was in the purple boots was the one who caused the pain and, and suffering to those two. So like, I, 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 I don't feel like that mystery actually is resolved. I, but then at the same time, it's like, are, are we going to address it or is that it? And if that's it, then I feel that's even more disappointing because then why? I mean, I understand that they weren't ready to reveal Mask as being alive then. But then I don't know, like it, it's clunky is the bottom line. It feels very clunky. You know, we either we either have the resolution to something and it's kind of flat to me or we have a lingering mystery out there that we're not addressing. And when we do address, there may not be enough time to give it a satisfying payoff if, if they're not going to like do it anytime soon. So I, either way, I'm just a little, it, it, it ties back to the main point of what I was just saying is mask enough of a draw to really make this all seem worth it from a Spider-Man perspective. I don't think so yet. Um, and they need to, I think in my mind, figure out something fast to break, make it personal or otherwise it's just going to be, it's a, it's a fun story and it's a cool story and I'm loving the art and I'm loving Wells and, you know, but like, as of right now, this is just a very good story and I want it. I, I think it has potential to be better than that, but we got We got to start connecting some dots here. Right. And you make a good point that it doesn't actually matter if it's a twist or not. The matter is, you know, do we care about Madame Mask or whoever she is or whoever she's working with on a personal level for Spider-Man? And I still think there's plenty of time to do that, but it just hasn't happened yet. And so those parts of the book feel a little bit like disconnected from the main thrust of things here. And I got to be honest with you, I'm not entirely sold on there being a twist anymore. You know, like maybe we're over reading the masculine figure that was in the shadows and the purple boots. You know, maybe they just chose to make it look masculine because they didn't want to make you automatically think that it was Madame Mask, not dead or whatever. I mean, I, I like, you know, I'm open to Wells shocking me again or leaving that in, in the past and expecting readers to not look at it as closely as someone like you and I might. But I do think it's interesting. I wanted to point out that I think it's curious that Madame Mass just kills Count Nefaria here if he's dead, because that's her father, you know, and there is a speech between them about her being under him for so long and him never like really seeing her, you know, that if it truly is like a father daughter goodbye conversation, it works. It's just really understated. And it's in character for Madame Mass to like finally want to get out from underneath him. They've been up and down, back and forth over the decades. I mean, it's a very small moment if that's like a big deal drama that used to be at the heart of many Avengers books, which is Madame Mask versus Count Nefaria and what side she was going to take to have that kind of be the end. Maybe it's more of a status update on Count Nefarious Place in the Marvel Comics universe, <laughs> which is to say not as big as it used to be. It's understated enough that if it was like, oh, no, it's just like 
another person playing as Madame Mask that's saying that to Count Nefaria and they didn't mine it for the father-daughter drama that I could kind of buy into that too. And that might be me overreading and going like, oh, he's soft pedaling because he's got another thing to drop. But I, I do think it's interesting that like, uh, or another thing to drop as in another body, uh, <laughs> they seem to be dropped a lot in this book. I, don't, I just didn't want to lose the thread that like she killed Na- Count Nefaria supposedly and that's her dad. Right. Well, allegedly. We don't know. We, it, it, I mean, I, I, I was joking, but we really don't like, I don't know. Like until until we see him be like taken out in a body bag, it's hard to say. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, but but really hurt him, you know. And there's not much acknowledgement to like that's their family history. You got a grade? Yeah, this one's a B plus for me. I, I, I'm a just a nudge below you. I'm at B here. I'm still deeply on board the storyline. I think this is the most fun. This title has been, I'd say in a long time, we've got a lot of good issues. This has been a good run on on this title. This storyline, I think, is really paying off like so much of what Zeb has been interested in doing. And I just trusted him, you know, like, I mean, maybe he hasn't always had a solid track record over the past couple of years. But like, I think this stuff is so deeply in his wheelhouse. I'm, I can't wait to see how it plays out. Awesome. Well. It is that time, time for all good things to come to an end. So we want to say thank you to you, the listeners and viewers, for tuning into this episode of The Amazing Spider Talk. Yeah, this podcast exists because of listener support on Patreon. For only $3.99 a month, you can help support our show's existence while getting early episodes, including these reviews, the very same week the comics release, exclusive artwork, and a ton of other bonuses. So thank you to everyone who already supports us in the work that Mark and I do. But we wanted to send an extra special thanks to our newest contributors, Sean Orr and Spider Dad 4 I guess Spider Dads 1 through 3 were already taken. So welcome, Spider Dad 04. Thank you both. To download our earliest episodes, including interviews with legendary creators like J.M. DeMatteis, Tom DeFalco, Ron Friends, Mark Bagley, David Michelini, and more, subscribe to our amazing Spider Talk Back Issues podcast on Apple Podcasts. This podcast was edited by Rick Coast. The video version of the show is available on YouTube and was edited by Alex Galucki. Our artwork comes handcrafted by artists Ron Friends, Sal Buscema, and Nick Cagnetti. And our theme songs were produced by Ryland Bojack, Tony Thaxon, and Spider Madge. And our animated intro was created and performed by Josh Sutton. One last shout out. Don't forget to subscribe to our amazing Spider Talk Substack. Mark and I are putting a lot of work into it to keep up with the latest of everything Spider-Man uh, that we can't cover on the show or, and, and all the love that we have for that character. You can go to amazingspidertalk.substack.com or go on the Substack app and find us at Amazing Spider Talk. And hopefully you'll subscribe. I, I think it's some of the best stuff that we've ever put out is in that Substack. So uh, we hope you'll check it out there. But in the meantime, Mark, until you invite me into your basement and reveal your new gimp suit costume, what's our motto? Is it that I look like I mean business? Is that our motto? <laughs> no. Zed's dead, baby. Zed's oh. dead. All right. Well, with great podcasts, there must also come the amazing Spider Talk. Don't, don't miss the next
Are we going to get sued by the Tarantino estate? 